Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our primary guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Kristen Hawkins, the young, energetic, and creative president of Students for Life of America. And this is one of several episodes we are doing in honor of Respect Life Month, which is October. And Tom, if our listeners are, th- are thinking of fast-forwarding, they shouldn't, because Kristen is absolutely amazing to listen to, and they don't want to miss getting a chance to hear her talk with us. But before we, uh, we go to Kristen... I've got some fun facts, uh, and fun should be put in funny quotation marks, because (laughs) they're not fun at all. But, you know, we're going to talk, obviously, about abortion and Respect Life Month and with a guest like Kristen. But there's there's a lot of uh, statistics on abortion that I personally found amazing. And statistics, as we know, can always be tricky, right? And so most of these statistics that I found to go over are from the Guttmacher Institute. Which is Planned Parenthood's own research It is. It's a very self-described, liberal, progressive, pro-contraception, pro-abortion. So they don't want to prove any of our points. Exactly. So I think in an odd way we can say their statistics for the purpose of this discussion uh, are trustworthy. But here's a couple to think about. They were in uh, 2014, which is the year, the most recent year that we have good data on national abortion numbers. There were 926,200 abortions performed in the United States. Wow. Uh, there were 1.6 million in 2011. So that's down 12% from 2011 to 2014. But does that include chemical abortions? It is supposed to be complete. Okay. That number is supposed to be complete. Now, you bring up a great point, and that is there is some controversy about when we talk about the total number of abortions, does it include the chemicals? And there is a challenge that's tough to prove uh, from state to state to state because different states have different reporting mechanisms. And even things as simple as an infant or a neonatal mortality rate can be calculated differently from state to state. So in some states, uh, Indiana as an example, chemical abortions must be reported, and therefore they're in the statistic. There are other, shall we say, left-leaning states where that isn't always the case. So it's hard to know, and you have to take those numbers when you hear them uh, with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek and question them. Um, But at least according to Guttmacher, 926,000 abortions in 2014. That's a lot of abortions. I remember uh, a member of my family saw one of my children with a sweatshirt on that said, one-third of my generation has been aborted. And they responded, oh, that's just a blatant lie. But there was this little asterisk next to the (laughs) one-third, and it said, source, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And it's amazing how many people are are yet not aware of how prevalent abortion is. You know, another fun fact, you might say, the average cost, according to Planned Parenthood, of an abortion is around $500, plus or minus, depending on some of the specifics. So quick math, that's that's almost $500 million in 2014 for abortions. Oh, my goodness. Right. And why do they need money from the government? <laughs> one one has to ask. But at the same time, why is it hard, uh, as we'll hear from other guests, to get media coverage for things on life? Because there's so much bias against covering the topic, because there's so much money at stake. $500 million is a lot of money. Here's another one. 45% of women seeking an abortion have had at least one previous abortion. Wow. I found that one to be pretty surprising. So almost half of women in line to get an abortion have been in that line before. 46% of abortions are performed on women less than 25 years of age. That one shocked me as well. About 12% on adolescents and about 35% on women aged 20 to 24. But over half, or roughly half, I should say, are less than 25 years of age. Actually, I thought it was going to be higher because I don't picture older women having as many abortions. So really, for me, 
that's already changed the paradigm I had in my head. Because as we've heard several experts say, the way we talk to people that are less than 25 years of age may be dramatically different than the way we reach people that are that are 35 or sure. 45. Uh, we know that's the case. And, and the way younger people respond to different types of media coverage and things is going to be radically different. So I think that's an important statistic for us to keep in mind. Yes. And I think it'll help us as we talk to Kristen about how they reach out to that under 25 demographic. Yeah. Approximately one-fourth of American women have had an abortion by the age of 45. One-fourth. One in four women. That's incredible. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to imagine. Well, Chris, you've got a ton of facts here, and we're going to save these for another show. But right now, before we go to our break, I just want to ask our medical trivia question of the day, which deals with unborn babies. And I'm sure you know the answer of it, so please don't spill well, the beans. it's kind of a prickly, bony question. I don't know it, if... Um... It, it is a, 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 not a thorny question, but a bony <laughs> one. An adult has 206 of them. That is bones. Well, how many bones does a newborn baby have? You'll have to listen to the end of the show to find out. We'll be back with Kristen Hawkins after the break here on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And welcome back to our guest interview today with Kristen Hawkins. She is the president of Students for Life of America for the last 13 years. There are more than 1,200 chapters of this organization in all 50 states split between high schools and colleges. And the organization exists to abolish abortion by transforming our culture. Kristen is a frequent speaker in numerous areas of the media world. Uh, she served on candidate Donald Trump's pro-life advisory council. She was a presidential appointee in the George W. Bush administration at Health and Human Services. Uh, she's a published author, having written Courageous, Students Abolishing Abortion in This Lifetime. And my favorite factoid about you, Kristen, is that the progressive group Media Matters labels you as one of the four worst anti-abortion <laughs> misinformers. That is a badge of courage. Welcome her. She is married to Jonathan, raising four children at home. Welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me today, guys. Hey, you're welcome. So I learned recently at the Napa Institute where I heard you speak and got to talk to you that your organization has trained over 75,000 young, hip, joy-filled students to promote <laughs> and defend life. So I think you have a profound amount of insight that parents like me and grandparents like other listeners are constantly on the lookout for. How to better understand today's 14 to 25-year-olds. What are some of the key things you've learned about this age group in your work, Kristen? She's probably learned that none of them say hip, Tom. I can't believe you said that. So, Kristen, I apologize. He actually got that from me. I, I did. I, that's, See, it was a quote. <laughs> he actually was quoting me. Apparently, you took very good notes at our meeting. Uh, Tom. Yes, but, I did. No, uh, that's how I describe. Thanks, thanks for uh, saving young, me. Yeah, so we, that's how I describe uh, you know this this pro life generation to the older folks. They're young, hip, and joyful. Um, those are kind of like my three adjectives I constantly are using. Um, but yes, no, I mean with things I've learned. Oh my gosh, and things I continue to learn. I mean, I think that's one of the the things that really struck me, you know, when we started Students for Life is, you know, something that may work one semester or one year won't necessarily work uh, in six months or in wow. two years. That so you actually constantly have to change. You have to find new messaging tools, new strategies. And I, I talk a lot about this in the pro-life movement of making sure that we know what our mission is, but we're not, not afraid to change our, our strategy, not afraid to change our tactics, not to get too bogged down or too married to a certain tactic or strategy. Because if you are, you'll be heartbroken all the time because something that might have worked a year ago to convert, to create a conversation on campus may not work anymore. Yeah. And it's, it's constantly changing. We've definitely seen uh, a shift from Generation X to Generation Y, the millennials, and now with Generation Z. This is uh, Generation Z. The oldest Generation Z member is and starting their sophomore year of college this year. And so we, we, we actually have been monitoring what's the shift in the kind of the generations and kind of the, the, the divide and the change in attitudes, which hopefully will happen and actually be for the good uh, in, in our case. I think when we look at how we talk with our with young people, 
you know, we have to realize that, you know, that this is a very uh, secular generation. Mm. Um, this is the least church generation that our nation's ever seen. Um, this is a very diverse generation. This is a generation that leans very politically liberal on many issues. And so when we start having a conversation about abortion, we bring up abortion, we make sure that we're talking and appealing uh, to those students using their language, using their vocabulary. So the way we talk about abortion on campuses is uh, as a human rights issue and, and you know how abortion is fundamentally an act of violence. It's an act of discrimination against someone smaller and weaker than yourself. You know, Kristen, we've heard from, uh, as we've talked about some of the sort of outrageous abortion laws that have been put forth just Mm -hmm. in 2019, this idea that suddenly everyone is worshiping at this altar of personal autonomy, that that Mm -hmm. a woman's autonomy deserves sort of, you know, the penultimate respect over everything, that feels like it's a new concept. Have you seen something like that in your work? I mean, this is a. I mean, this is a language that they've been using for years. Is mm. my body, my choice? I mean, that gosh, that has been yes. screamed to me for for years on college campuses or in front of the Supreme Court. Um, so I, I think this is something that's been been continuing. I, I do think you've seen, especially in the news and you know with the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh and the hands and tail yes. ladies who like to dress up in character costume. What they're doing is uh, they're trying to use the fear, as this is a very common tactic in social movement organizing, of using the fear of the unknown, mm. uh, the fear of what does America without Roe versus Wade look like? What is it that Republicans or pro-lifers, they're trying to force you to be as, as a woman? And so that's something that we, we have to... We have to really talk about and That's why on college campuses, for example, this semester coming up, we are going to be talking about a life without Roe, life after Roe. And what does that mean? And what does our vision as pro-lifers for America where abortion is illegal and then unthinkable? Uh, and so, so that's really where we've been focusing on and talking about talking about the end of abortion because it is scary. You have to think you have a whole generation of kids who have never lived in America without legal abortion. And the, the left, uh, Planned Parenthood, is there always, you know, hammering home to her that, you know, these mean Republicans are trying to take away her rights, are trying to dictate uh, what she can do with her body. Kristen, when we think about students, we often think that they are not going to be very pro-life, especially from the time of Roe v. Wade in 1973 to today. How has the attitudes of students toward abortion changed in that 46 years since Roe v. Wade? Well, I think obviously when you look at the beginning of Roe versus Wade, you know, you had a lot of people who were uh, opposed to abortion. Making abortion legal actually changed it in a lot of people's minds. But you did have young people, you know, kind of buying the lies of like, oh, yeah, it's her body, it's her choice, it's, it's nothing. Um, I think if you look in the 90s in the polling, that's when it was at its worst for us, for as a pro-life movement, mm. uh, with Generation X. But it's definitely started to swing the other way. Uh, and Gallup polls and mainstream polls will show this. Um, the more we talk about abortion, the more extreme the other side has gotten, yes. especially over the Obama, oh, the Obama years. That's actually helped us in, in yes. really having a conversation. What we saw with the laws in New York State and Illinois State, the extremism, the law that was introduced in Virginia with Virginia. the governor in Virginia, demand, you know, defending infanticide, that actually only moved people in our directions because they win – they win when abortion's not talked about. Mm. And this is one of the key points we say ah. to our students all the time, is they want you to shut up. They want you to be silent. They don't want you to have your Students for Life group or your event on campus. They don't want to cover your, your uh, you know, program or speaker that you've held on campus because if they're smart, they realize that that we win just simply because truth is on our side. The gruesomeness of abortion ultimately will, will always speak for itself. One of the things that you said at Napa is that the mushy middle has become the moral high ground. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that we've been studying a lot at Students for Life is 
how how do we convert? How do we convert those? I don't like abortion. I wouldn't have abortion, but um, I I can't say I'm pro-life. And what we found is, you know, one we have a branding problem in the pro-life movement. Pro-life has become synonymous with old white GOP member. <laughs> and uh, you want to talk about brand problem? The GOP has has a brand problem. And I say this as actually as a registered Republican. Um, so the GOP brand is actually worse than the pro-life brand. So there's the good news for us. Um, but we've let them, you know, we've let them define us and. We've let them tell America who we really are. That's why, you know, when we're talking about envisioning a post-Roe America, it, we've got to go out and share our vision and say, this is what we want for women, we want for children, we want for families, and here's actually how we're making it a reality. Um, and so I think that's the first kind of challenge that we have there is why people, and especially young people, who are right there with us, they're 90% with us, but they won't come over and say they're pro-life. They're not going to vote for a pro-life candidate. They're not going to identify as part of our movement. We've also seen, and this is just generationally as well, that you know, having a, an opinion on anything is considered potentially triggering. Is considering is considered judgmental, and so being right in the middle on every single issue, whether it's abortion or gay marriage or whatever, that's considered kind of like that that good thing. It really fits um, with the idea they, of tolerance, doesn't it? I just tolerate. Yeah, mm-hmm. I tolerate everything. Yeah, because yeah, right you do you and I do me, mm. um, and, and that way it covers it covers them, so they can say, "Oh, I may be, you know, personally opposed, but I'm not going to tell you what that what you should believe." You know, it feels like now. It turns out I'm an old guy, but it but it. it, it uh, <laughs> Don't worry, I'm like the old person in my organization. I'm 34, <laughs> oh, and no. I am, I am the old person, right. so I, I increasingly feel old every single day when I go out and talk to I'm these. I'm sure students. you need a walker to go on campus at 34. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to me that so much of the abortion discussion hinges on personhood, and mm-hmm. if we can convince the person we're talking to that the the thing in the uterus they're talking about is a person, life changes. But uh, is that generational or is is the personhood concept, is that uniform across generational groups? Well, I mean, you know, it's, we we use more of the equality um, argument, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, what do we all have in common? All of us, you know, if we're in the room together, what do all of us have in common? We're all different. We're all shape, different shapes and sizes, different backgrounds, different IQ levels, uh, different ba- families. You know, we're all born in different places. Mm-hmm. The one thing that unites every single human on this earth is our shared humanity. That's what we have in common. Um, we don't really, I mean, we're so different because that's, you know, how God made us. And so we talk about how we have this shared humanity, and because we're humans, because just simply the fact that we are humans, that makes us equal to each other. Hmm. And we can never say one human is more equal, you know, more deserving of rights than another, because, you know, anytime you get into that argument and you see throughout history, it becomes a very slippery slope. (laughs) Um, And so we make this argument of we're all equal, and simply because we are human beings, simply because we are a member of this species, therefore, Therefore, the preborn, we know science tells us, are a member of our species. They are human. Therefore, they are as equal to, to, to you and I as anyone else. Um, that's more of an argument that we use. Um, the concept of personhood, though, definitely comes up all the time. We go hear it with the left um, and, and because they, they understand this. When personhood is, is brought up, they have to fundamentally deny that the preborn is a person deserving of rights. Yet, when you have laws like the Lacey Pearson law in California, the most extreme abortion state, um, yet they have a law that literally protects pregnant women and their children. And if you kill a pregnant woman through murder or any other way, uh, you could be charged with a double homicide. But yet, if she goes into the abortion facility, wow. perfectly fine. She, you know, she can she can kill her child, and it's and it's nothing. And it's not blob of tissue. And that's 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 the real irony here of our abortion laws in our country is it, they're not in line with how how anyone else actually thinks. Kristen, the question I've been waiting for, the most important question of this interview, the reason that I wanted to interview you was because of one statement you made that to me is astounding. You said when your Student for Life members go onto campuses and have conversations about abortion, you get a 50% conversion rate. What does that mean and how in the world do you do it? 
Yes, absolutely. That it was something that was very important to us this year because one of the things we've realized is with 1,200 groups on college campuses, I, you know, I often get the question, what does that mean? What's the power of a Students for Life group? Well, the power of a Students for Life group is we're, we're, we're conversing, right, with those people that are directly targeted by the abortion industry. We're able to reach our peers like no one else. We're able to stop them from building a relationship with a predatory abortion facility down the street that's preying off of them, um, that's hoping for their business. We're able to convert them um, before they go to the ballot box and vote. That, that's really the power of the pro-life generation and, and organizing and why we need to have and why it's so important to continue to grow Students for Life groups on college campuses. So this year, I asked our staff when they're having conversations about abortion, about Planned Parenthood, to simply measure the results. You know, are we able to move people down the line? Are we able to move them to, the, to pro-life? And this spring, on our spring tour, uh, it was, do, um, do you trust Planned Parenthood, was, was the question we asked students. Um, and we were able to convert 50% of those students from pro-Planned Parenthood to anti-Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Um, and so it's about the way we have the conversations with the young people, how we present the information. Uh, and a lot of it's, you know, honestly, when you're talking about Planned Parenthood, you just use their own annual report. You just <laughs> you know, use their own quotes. It's, they, make, they make our job very easy, especially this week. Um, they continue to make our job a lot easier. So give, a, give our listeners some of the key things that they might be able to use in conversations they have. Sure. Well, I think, you know, that, that the notion of equality is something I, I think you should bring up when you're having conversations. Um, because, I mean, you can't deny, and science shows us, that the moment of creation a unique whole living human being that's distinct, separate uh, from the mother has been created. And that, that human being has never existed before and will never exist again. That is just science. People can deny that, but if they do, they're denying science. They're actually the science deniers. Um, so I, I keep keep hammering on that. I think this concept of equality, talking about how why all human equal, you know, human beings are equal to each other. They have equality, and we we're equal because we share that common humanity. Um, I would say, you know, when we talk and we convert, uh, we do this from a non-religious standpoint. I mean, I know why we're equal, why we have, a, uh, why human beings are valuable, um, because I'm a Christ follower, and I know who, <laughs> who image I was created in. Uh, on campuses, we don't lead with that. Um, and it, usually the conversation will get to a religious standpoint at some point, a metaphysical question, because, you know, if, it, if somebody is really, if your student is doing as a philosophy major, they'll eventually ask, well, why are you assuming human beings have value. And then there's your opportunity to say, well, I know human beings have value because I was in, made in the image of someone. Um, and so that's really when you get to that metaphysical question. Um, I, I would encourage you when you're having conversations uh, to ask questions and really to point out um, the illogical position uh, of the uh, pro-abortion movement. For example, I was talking to a student at Catholic College, Boston College, on my speaking tour this spring, who was yelling at me and saying, well, you don't care about children. These children at the border are dying, and you're just a white Republican, and you're just racist, blah, 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 blah. And I said, absolutely, let me just stop you right there. I believe that if a child, uh, if any person is in need of life-sustaining care, we give it to that person, regardless of whether or not they're a legal immigrant. I believe that that child child, you know, who's crossed the boards, made a dangerous trek uh, through Mexico, de- deserves, and because they're simply a human being, life-sustaining care. And, we, and as, as uh, you know, Christians, we should give them that care. And so she said, okay, fine. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. <laughs> um, do you believe that a child who's born alive during an abortion procedure, that's living and breathing on his or her own, that a child in abortion facility, do you think that child should receive life-sustaining care? <laughs> you can guess what she said. She said no, oh my. no. And I said, well, I said, why? And she said, well, the mother and the abortionist have already determined it's not a baby. And at that point, she actually helped me convert the hostel. There was a sold-out crowd. There was about 150 students, and they were very hostile to me. That was probably the most potent part of my entire presentation, and I didn't really have to say anything. I just asked questions. Uh, I proved to her, and I proved to everyone around her, the illogical position that she was taking, that she was denying her science, 
Um, and she was actually count- walking back on her own philosophy that human beings have value and deserve life-sustaining care. And so I, I would encourage you to ask questions to try to point this out because so often when you're talking to somebody, if it, whether it's a young person in your life who's gone away to college and then suddenly, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner, they're a totally different person with a totally different worldview, <laughs> ask questions because what they're going to be spouting off a lot of times are just talking points. Yes. Um, and they really haven't thought them through. So it's, it's about the way you respond to them, the way you engage with them, um, obviously not shouting, but asking questions. Um, I would also encourage you, if there's a young person in your life, a child, a grandchild, get them involved with the Students for Life group on campus. Get them involved with other ministries on campus. Maybe they may not feel comfortable uh, joining a Christian group on campus or hanging out with a focused missionary, but they might join a Students for Life group because it's seen as a secular group on campus. Mm. But you know what? When they join that Students for Life group, they're going to be surrounded with people (laughs) who have a Christian worldview. And that's what, I mean, honestly, that's what you're competing against as a parent or grandparents is your child's worldview is going to be challenged the moment they step foot on campus. So it doesn't matter if they start hanging out with Protestants, if they start hanging out with Jews, as long as they start hanging out with somebody who at least has like a Judeo-Christian worldview, they're going to be okay. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's really important. Yeah, that's impressive. It is amazing the power of peers and uh, Tom and I both have kids in college and we all worry about that first semester home um, and what, what, how the world is I worry is about it them. now, and my oldest is 10. <laughs> <laughs> they're, going, they're all going to Franciscan. I, we, they, they don't have a choice. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, but it is powerful listening to you. I mean, the idea, listen, listen carefully, ask questions, and then point out inconsistencies and the beliefs, because often they're not beliefs, they're just speaking points that they've been told. Uh, that's really, I think our listeners can benefit from hearing that. Thank you. What are some other key questions to ask? Or do you have any other vignettes, like the Boston College story, where something powerful happened? Well, I mean, I have lots of vignettes. I, a lot of them I don't think I can share on this podcast, though. <laughs> uh, this is EWTN. Um, I, I, I would say, you know, we're talking about, you know, your, your children and your grandchildren. I think, you know, you have to talk to them now. Because not you know their whole worldview is going to be turned upside down. We had a the last college I spoke to on my speaking tour this May. This was a campus where they set the banners of my face on fire uh, before I came. So they were you know a really welcoming audience. I had 300 <laughs> protesters. We had to have an overfill room. It was great. It was a great presentation, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I, I actually enjoyed speaking to hostile audiences way more than friendly audiences. Um, <laughs> But one of the things that really struck me, and this has happened to me twice now in the state of Washington, it hasn't happened to other places, but it's going to come. Anything that comes, you starts on the West Coast, it always goes east. Like the weather. Um, and this <laughs> was the second time, This, ha- yeah, exactly. This is the second time that happened to me, and something that you all need to be really aware of. Um, and, and I saw some articles today about, you know, parents being shocked when they went to their college campus and the orientation for freshmen and all the name tags have you select your preferred pronoun. Yes. Uh, you know, are you a his, her, or a they? Um, what, what I saw on campus, I was talking about supporting and loving pregnant and parenting women, how we as pro-lifers are charged to do more. And a, and a woman rose, raised her hand and started... Uh, yelling because I had triggered her because she could bear children, but she was not a woman. Um, and and she said, was well, what precisely? <laughs> I said, yeah, I said, no, you are a woman. You have a uterus. You can actually grow and just stay another human being inside of you. Um, not all women can do that. Um, but by the very fact that you have a uterus, you are a woman. Uh, so uh, that, then she you know, proceeded to scream and bang her head on the desk. But this is something that I, I think we, we definitely, this concept of gender, um, and it's coming into the pro-life movement we're seeing, um, and it, it's something you need to talk about. I'm actually, for the, my fall speaking tour, I'm gonna, I might refer to people as womb uh, wounded and wo- wombless people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've covered this issue uh, at least three times on our show so far. Yeah, 
Yes. Yeah, so Good. I mean, that's, that's. I think it's very. I think it's very important. The other uh, kind of standout moment from my spring speaking tour just you know recently was uh, a debate I got into with a woman who was basically advocating. Well, you know, there's all these. Kids, there's four hundred thousand kids in foster care across the country. These kids are going to suffer a lifetime of pain. How how heartless are you to make make them make them live a terrible life? Um, and so it's this concept of kill the sufferer not the suffering yes yes and i think that's i think something we need to address head on as a pro-life movement thank you for these you know very practical tips that we can use in talking to our friends and acquaintances you have a the audacious goal what of reaching out to 250,000 students through conversations this year is that correct that's actually right, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is huge. I'm that crazy. But, <laughs> and you have this huge event planned the day after the March for Life. What is that? That's right. So this year, we um, every year, Students for Life hosts the, net, the world's largest pro-life conference, the Students for Life conference. But this year, we're doing something different. Uh, we, we're going to, instead of doing our conference, we've done away with that. It's going to be the day after the March for Life, Saturday, January 25th, in Washington, D.C., at the Marriott Marquis. The day after the March, we're actually hosting and proud to be co-sponsoring the National Pro-Life Summit. So instead of doing the Students for Life conference, we've actually opened up partnership with uh, some of our friends at Live Action, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Heritage. Foundation. Our four organizations will be co will be co sponsoring the National Pro Life Summit, which is going to be up for. Uh, I think we'll sell out about three thousand this year, um, and it's going to be a pro life day of training for pro lifers of all ages, uh, not just students. Because so many people come to the March for Life, they get excited. I mean, you have to think no other social movement in the history of the world turns out more people every year than the American March for Life. It's Amen. incredible, and you know, when, you know, when you're walking up Constitution Avenue, you're not alone. But the question is, what do you do when you get back home? How do you put that feeling? How do you have that passion that you have? And how do you put that passion to something that's actually going to produce change in your community, within your parish, within your church, within your school. Uh, and so we, uh, we're we hosting National Pro-Life Summit. We want pro-lifers of all ages to join us. We're going to have every national pro-life organization there, all the national speakers. It's a one-day-only event, um, so make sure you go to prolifesummit.org and register ASAP. Well, Kristen, we can't thank you enough for joining us, and it sounds so simple to say, but we can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing. There's so many things to thank God for, and you are definitely on the list. You're changing, uh, you're changing lives and changing the culture, and we're so pleased that you could come on, and you can come back anytime and uh, be on <laughs> Dr. Doctor. Talk to us about how to doctor to the young people. And your website is? Studentsforlife.org. Great. I hope that the uh, switchboard lights up, as they say, or the Internet. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us on Dr. Doctor, uh, right here from the studios of Redeemer Radio. We'll be back with you in just a moment after the break. And we're back with our bonus guest interview today with Jim Daly. He's the president of Focus on the Family. He's been president since 2005 when the founder, James Dobson, handpicked him to be a successor. He is far more experienced on radio than Chris and I are. He has 6.9 listeners per week for his award-winning daily broadcast on Focus on the Family, airing on over 1,000 radio stations with over 50,000 downloads daily. Tom, you know, I'm no mathematician, but it's 6.9 million million. You left the million part out. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not just 6.9. Yeah, 6.9 million. Well, I appreciate that. That's why there's two of us here. Uh, Jim has been at Focus on the Family for 30 years. His latest book is When Parenting Isn't Perfect. And he's written, among other books, Marriage Done Right, One Man, One Woman. He's married to Jean since 1986 and has two sons. And he lives in Colorado Springs. Jim Daly, welcome to Dr. Doctor. It's great to be with you. Thank you. It's a privilege. Oh, you know, Jim, I had the pleasure of meeting you at the Napa Institute in late July, and I heard you speak on two sessions about evangelicals and Catholics working together. Uh, Your humility, your good humor, your knowledge were infectious, and we invited you to be on the show because you talked about one of your special projects called Alive in New York, obviously a play on the uh, intro to Saturday Night Live. And either you or Tim Gagline, your vice president who was there, quoted Victor Hugo and said, nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come. 
Tell us about this idea, how it came about, and what you tried to do in Times Square on May 4th. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, the idea, there was a a couple of people in our our media department who thought of the idea. Why don't we just show them the baby in Times Square, and that would be a great approach to waking up the culture. And I think so many people were looking for a way to express themselves. How do we get our message out that life starts in the womb, starts at conception, we believe that a baby is sacred. And uh, so we thought, yeah, let's just do it. And so we went. We had 10 weeks to pull it off, and we got great support from Cardinal Dolan and uh, Bishop Byrne in New York. And I think because of the Catholic Church involvement, the NYPD was very supportive. (laughs) So we were grateful to everyone. Seriously, you know, I'm Irish, so you know the Irish cops, you know, hey, if the the Cardinal wants this done, we're going to get it done. (laughs) <laughs> oh, having the boys in blue on your side is always a benefit. So you had them on your well, side, but the, the evil one's always trying to, you know, prevent us from doing things right. What kind of obstacles did you have in pulling this off in 10 weeks? Well, the, you know, the most obvious, I was concerned from the beginning that the uh, screens, the jumbo screens in Times Square would have some issue uh, allowing us to show a live ultrasound. But we called, and we called ABC and uh, Clear Channel, and there's probably seven owners of the different Jumbotrons in Times Square. So we called them all, and at first they all said, yeah, we've got plenty of room, we'll book the time for you, and then we went into more detail about what we were doing. Uh And all of a sudden they said, well, we don't have inventory. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what? You just said there was plenty of room. And that's how it went. I mean, it was just pure discrimination. But, uh, you know, joyful warrior i thought we'll bring our own jumbotrons into times square we don't need them and that's what we did we just brought these large screens in they put them up beautifully right through times square i think we had four locations and people were it was very easy to see the uh ultrasound when we did it so even from different directions you could see it yeah we had yeah we had about you know, the, the permit allowed for 10,000 people to come in, but we had about 20,000 people that showed up. It was so funny. The New York Post rec- reported that 400 people had shown up, and that was the number of protesters that showed up. So, you know, when we talk about fake news, I think I'm starting to understand what the, the president means by that. You know, what is so ironic to me, Jim, is just a few months ago, I got to go to New York with my daughter, and we were walking down Times Square at 10 o'clock at night, and I got to tell you, I'm not I'm not very sheepish when it comes to images. I'm an OBGYN and have been for 25 years. But I saw a lot of things on those jumbotrons that were far more offensive than any ultrasound picture could ever be. And nobody was protesting. Well, that's the right it. question. <laughs> yeah, that's the right question. Well, how bizarre, you know, that we have to cover a child's eye because, heaven forbid, they should see a picture of a baby in the womb. I mean, I, I don't even understand it. I think politically, they, they just don't want to show it because they know the that power. when people see it, like an abortion-minded woman, you know, abortion-minded women, uh, when they see a picture of the ultrasound, a majority of them will choose life for their baby. Amen. So I don't think it's an accident that they try to prevent people from seeing what's actually taking place in the womb, especially in the third trimester where the baby is fully formed, as you well know, as a doctor. So, you know, that was the whole goal. Let's just show them the baby, and then it's on their shoulders. So, and since this had never been done in Times Square before, there were obviously a lot of large news outlets that wanted to cover it, right? <laughs> well, we, yeah, we had about 100 credentialed journalists, but the one that was so blatantly obvious was the New York, the New York Times was just down the street, literally two blocks away. And they just told our media team, yeah, we're not, we're not going to cover it. <laughs> yeah. And again, it, this was a massive uh, showing of support for life. We had 20,000 participants and probably 400 protesters. So it was big. So how did the day go? Give us a rundown of what happened when you started. Well, and, you know, again, we were aware of the protesters. Uh, they were, you know, the social media situation where they throw out, hey, come down and and, folk, and uh, protest focus on the family, Times Square, 3 o'clock on Saturday. And so we, we had, you know, a fair number of protesters, three to 400, and they said they were made up of pro-Planned Parenthood people, LGBTQ people, and also Black Lives Matters. <laughs> and it was perfect because the first three speakers we had were Alveda King, the niece of Martin Luther King Jr., and then uh, uh, African-American woman from 
from Connecticut who spoke powerfully about uh, women in the pro-life movement. And then Benjamin Watson, a good friend of mine who played for the New Orleans Saints. Now, unfortunately, as a Broncos fan, he's playing for the New England Patriots. Oh, So we're a little uh, oh, upset about I'm that. I'm sorry. But he My got up there, and he's a big man. He's the tight end. He's 6'5", and just, you know, all muscle. And he got up there, and he said, listen, the bottom line is Planned Parenthood has killed more black children in New York City last year than were born. And the Black Lives Matters people in the protest zone threw their signs down and came and joined us. Oh, that is that so been, sweet. That may have been the victory. Yeah, that's the, you know, like a light bulb went off and they thought, wow, why are we hanging out with these people who are killing our babies? Why don't we go join the people that are trying to save our babies? And I think we could do that with no real finger wagging, no uh, in-your-face confrontation, but let's just be joyful, as I believe the Lord would have us do it, talk about the truth of it and then let it rest on them and let their conscience and the Holy Spirit guide them. And that's what happened. That's really beautiful. I mean, I like to say when I'm talking to people about abortion, it's the, it's the number one cause of death among African Americans. It's not HIV. It's not cancer. It's not gun violence. It's violence in the womb. And it sounds like you were able to really connect with those protesters in a way that must've had a, uh, must've had a great impact on them. Well, tell us about what happened with the other. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. The other great moment with the protesters was when we actually uh, showed the ultrasound and the heartbeat came on and those protesters with those signs and they said all kind of horrible things, but the signs came down in front of them. They just kind of let them fall to their knees and their jaws were hanging open. And I thought to myself, I don't know that they've ever seen a baby in the womb or heard the heartbeat. That's how impacted they looked. And I thought, again, what a great victory that these people that may not even know what they're out there protesting for or against, they can actually hear it and see it. And I think it changed some of their minds. That is powerful. Wow. You had a little difficulty getting the, uh, the main star to perform, didn't you? The baby. Right. So Abby Johnson, whose story was portrayed in the movie uh, Unplanned, which was a powerful movie, one of the comments she made, which was so good, she said, a 14-year-old girl cannot go see my movie because they rated it R for violence. Think of that. Wow. But she could go get an abortion without her parents' consent. I mean, isn't that an irony for our culture that a 14-year-old girl can go get an abortion without mom and dad's consent, but she couldn't go to see this movie about babies in the womb? And uh, that was a real shocker for the crowd. And actually, Abby called me just a few days before the event and said, would you, you know, I'm eight months pregnant. Do you want to do the Mm. ultrasound on me? And I was going, oh, yes, this will be perfect. (laughs) Because we had already planned for her, uh, the actor that portrayed her in the movie, to be there, Ashley. And so we had Ashley on the the stage talking about playing the role and how her mother had uh, gone to a clinic to contemplate an abortion and chosen life for Ashley in real life. And then uh, we said, well, let's go to the baby. We did that. And then Abby Johnson came out and she had the line of lines. I'm sorry, my dress is covered in this jelly. They got it all over me. <laughs> <laughs> I so it was why. awesome. And she just started talking about how beautiful uh, life is. And again, it was just very uplifting, very joyful. And I think everybody had an incredible experience. Now, I understand that she had to uh, down some Mountain Dew to try to wake her baby up for the ultrasound. <laughs> yeah, so this, you know better than I do as a doctor. Eight months can be kind of kickback. I'm, I'm growing, so don't wake me up. <laughs> and so uh, this baby was just really chill and actually sleeping. And the sonographers, she was doing the ultrasound. They were trying to get this baby to get up, so they gave her Mountain Dew, had her jump up and down on one leg. I'm sure this is all very medically appropriate. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then finally the baby woke up with this big yawn, and we have a 4D ultrasound on the child, and it came through perfectly. And the baby yawns, and the sonographer says to 20,000 people in Times Square, there it is, the baby's yawning, waking up from a nap. And then, boom, it just took off from there in the heartbeat of the child. It was beautiful, a beautiful moment. And uh, how did people just on the sidewalks respond, you know, besides the protesters with signs? I, you know, I've been to Times Square probably 20 times, and it's always busy. Lots of horns like New York 
normally have. It was like a holy hush. It was amazing. As soon as the ultrasound came up, and we have it all on tape. It's beautiful. There was like this quiet that went right across Times Square. Not a horn, nothing, and people were just quiet. Wow. And it was an awesome thing. Then in that quietness, then the, the baby's heartbeat started playing throughout the, the area. And it, it was just something that I thought was right from the, the heart of God. It so, was really something. So our listeners can actually find this on your website, Focus on the Family? You know, I think that's one question I didn't ask. I need to. I think so. And certainly listeners can go to the website or they can call Focus. And I, I think it's still up so people can see it. What do you think will be the legacy of this event? Well, we just talked the other day. We had a strategy meeting, and we're going to attempt again to do a five-city venue simulcast. Oh. And it's going to be, hopefully, we're aiming for Saturday of Mother's Day weekend. Oh. So the Saturday right before Mother's Day on Sunday. And we're going to include, hopefully, Los Angeles, Dallas, uh, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, uh, and a couple of other cities. We don't have them nailed down yet, but we're uh, beginning to talk with those those city organizers. Well, I mean, so I think that's going to be, we want to make it so impossible the news media can't help but cover it. Good. And uh, I'm going to keep track of this and uh, see if we can have you or somebody on about this to, um, to help publicize this even more. And one, you know, one final question, Jim, is how do you see evangelicals and Catholics working together in the future to promote our culture of life here in the United States? Well, one of the things I did very intentionally was to reach out to Jeannie Mancini at March for Life, which, of course, of course is a Catholic event. And they really, they've spearheaded this collaboration over the years. And Catholics have been so awesome at standing in the gap for life and really led the way and helped to lead evangelicals into a more, a deeper understanding of what it, what life is all about. So, I so appreciate the Catholic Church for all these years leading the way. But I think on this issue particularly, and other social issues, we need to stand together. Mm. Um, and I'm grateful Thank you so very much. much for their willingness to do that with Focus on the Family. Again, Cardinal Dolan was terrific. He sent a video that we played in Times Square, and Bishop Byrne introduced it and talked about the engagement of the Church in New York. And it was it was perfect, pitch perfect. Jim Daly, president of Focus on the Family. Thank you so much for being our special guest today on Dr. Doctor. We look forward to hearing from you in the future as you do so many good things for all culture. God bless you, Jim. And we're back for the end of this episode of Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question, which is, an adult has 206 bones as long as they have all their appendages. How many bones does a baby have at birth? And I'll turn it over to my partner here who has seen many more babies in his life than me. <laughs> babies have a lot of bones at birth. There you go. You've heard that? it from the they, horse's mouth. They have about 300 bones at birth. And the tricky thing is, isn't it, the definition of a bone? Oh, yes. Because it starts off as cartilage, which is not quite yet a bone. Um, you know, an acorn's not an oak tree. Um, and some of their cartilage becomes bones, and some of their cartilage stays cartilage, like the tip of our nose or in, in, the, in the firm part of our ears. Yes. So it's a little bit of a trick question, but you're not, you're not above doing trick questions, are you? I am not. So now you know it. Yes, and, and some of those bones fuse as we age down to the 206 that we have. But uh, I think today we had two certified A-list guests on our show. We really did. They're both remarkable, and I hope it gives our listeners a sense of what's happening on the, the front lines. You know, we all live in some kind of bubble or another, don't we? And it's, it's easy to lose track. If you turn on the mainstream media, you certainly get a, a twisted view of what might be happening in the world. But I'll tell you, I could listen to Kristen talk you know, forever, because she's so excited, she's so positive, and she's really on the true front lines, changing the culture by talking to young people, something most of us never get a chance oh, to do. And, and Jim Daly, with his huge organization of primarily evangelical Christians, actually had a huge impact in my life in the late 80s when I was in medical school. There just wasn't a lot of Catholic Catholic literature out at that time. I mean, I was reading Peter Kraft and G.K. Chesterton, but they put out a lot of things on family life that was really good and is still really good. But you know, isn't it uh, ironic, for lack of a better term, 
that this pox on society that is abortion is having the, uh, no doubt, unintended consequence of uniting uh, Catholics and Protestants around something as fundamental as life. Yes, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing to work together with our brothers and sisters who are, are not members of the Catholic faith. Yeah, the gates of hell don't have a chance. So you've got some data points you'd like to share. Well, it's just a, a couple of fascinating things uh, as we leave our listeners. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, about abortion and about you know the wonderful pictures in, in New York Square. Here's something to keep in mind. Abortion disproportionately affects black and Hispanic women. It's the number one killer of African Americans in America. 39% of abortions happen from white women, but they represent 61% of the population. 28% of abortions happen with black women. They only represent 12% of the population. So that's two and a third times more than if... Exactly. Abortions were evil. 25% of abortions come from Hispanic women, yet they only make up 18% of the population. That's why the majority of Planned Parenthood clinics are in impoverished areas that are predominantly minority uh, minority families and women living, because that's their prey. Uh, That's where they make their money, that $500 million plus a year on abortions. It comes from the minority population. We are so glad we could bring you the joyful alternative to these bleak (laughs) facts. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing the Women's Care Center Network that serves moms and babies with Bobby Williams, the director of Women's Care Center Foundation. It's going to be a fantastic talk. I just can't wait. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Straub, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show. This is Dr. Tom McGovern from Dr. Doctor. We encourage you, my co-hosts and I, to please give generously what you can to Redeemer Radio. They gave us our start on the air nearly two years ago, which has led to being present on EWTN around the world. Redeemer Radio is doing many good things to bring about the conversion of many people to the faith. So please be generous. Give to Redeemer Radio so more and more people can listen in the uh, the quiet of their homes, of their cars, of their earbuds. Because there's no evangelization tool like radio where people can be alone and try something on without letting other people know about it. Thanks for your generosity already, and God bless you all. From Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is recorded and produced by Redeemer Radio. To support the continued work of the show, visit RedeemerRadio.com slash donate.